The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study this morning of the fourth gospel. And we're moving today into the seventh chapter, so we're making great progress here. We're uh, we're moving right along. We're almost a third of the way in. Uh, <clears throat> now, before we jump into chapter seven, let me review for a minute what we've seen thus far. In chapter one, it starts right out with being introduced to the eternal Word, who was God and was with God. So we start right there. The Word is Yeshua. He's the Creator of all things. Through Him. The world was spoken into existence. We also saw in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh. The eternal God took on humanity. He was born of a woman, fully God and yet fully man. And John introduces him later as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We also see in that chapter that he is the ladder that Jacob saw in his vision, the one who gives us access to Yahweh. Now in chapter 2, we see Yeshua, the Creator, turn water into wine. And we see that He's the greater temple. He actually replaces the temple. He is the anti-type of the temple. The temple represented the presence of God among the children of Israel. So now we have Yeshua pitched His tent and tabernacle among us. He is the presence of God. In chapter 3, we saw that He foreshadowed the bronze serpent. Lifted up by Moses in the wilderness. The bronze serpent in the wilderness provided deliverance from those children who realize their need and Yeshua does that to those who believe in Him. By comparing Himself to the serpent, Yeshua was teaching that whoever trusted in His death would receive eternal life. In chapter 4, we saw that He was one who was greater than Jacob, offering the woman at the well living water. He is the Messiah, the one through whom we worship God in spirit and in truth. That is how we worship God in spirit and truth, is through Yeshua. Now, chapter 5 is one of the greatest chapters in the Word of God on what? What does chapter 5 teach us so clearly? This is a test. You're not doing too well. Chapter 5 deals with the deity of Christ. In chapter 5, we saw Yeshua heal the lame man on the Sabbath. Then he got accused you know, of making himself equal with God. And when they accused him of being equal with God, what did he do? He launches into a diatribe to say, you're right. I am 100% equal with God. 523, so that all who honor the Son, even as they honor the Father... He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. He receives the same honor as God because He is God. In our 21st century world of pluralism, with so many different religious beliefs, this verse blows all views away except Christianity. You simply cannot have a relationship with God apart from Yeshua. Alright, then we move into chapter 6. And chapter 6, another test people, ready? Chapter 6 is one of the greatest chapters in the Word of God on what? 
I can understand five. We did that a few months ago. We'll call chapter six. Chapter six deals with the sovereignty of God in salvation. Over and over, Yeshua tells unsaved men that unless Yahweh had given them to the Son, unless He draws them to the Son, they will never, ever understand His words. They will never come. Now, you got those two? I'm going to give you another test next week. Okay, see how you do. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. It's only those who have been given by the Father that come. And in this chapter, we see that Yeshua is the true bread from heaven who gives eternal life to those who the Father has given Him. Now, we saw that chapter 6 starts with Yeshua's popularity. I mean, it's at its height. All right, the crowds are coming to him. He, he's got crowds following. He leaves one location. He goes to Capernaum. The crowds follow him there. Everybody, you know, he is very popular. But by the end of the chapter, they got 12 disciples still there. He thinned out the herd really quickly. Okay. And chapter seven, after this popularity is waning in six, if we get to chapter seven, it opens with the Jews are trying to kill him. Chapter 7, 1. After these things, Yeshua was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Alright, now notice, after these things. This Greek expression, meta tauta, it's the same expression that introduces 5, 1, introduces 6, 1. It's a literary way of moving the account along. Alright, we're moving to a new subject. Chapter 6 was a unit. Chapter 5 was a unit, now we're moving to a new unit, we're moving to a different scenario, we're moving to a different location. But these first 13 verses are explaining the move to the new location. This is six months from where we ended in chapter 6. So by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, in one verse, in between those two verses, there's six months. Alright? Because chapter, you say, well, how do you know that? You say, that's in the white spaces. You've got to learn to read what's in the white spaces, all right? In chapter 6, verse 4, there was a Passover, remember? Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. This would have been the Passover between the winter and spring of AD 32. Just one year before Yeshua's crucifixion. The Passover was the event that triggered everything in 6. And everything we read in 6 took place in a couple days. Now, in chapter 7, verse 2, you have another feast. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Alright, this is six months later. So, in between those two chapters, we got six months. Passover is a spring event. Tabernacles or booths is a fall event. So, Lazarus jumps six months. Just like that. Alright? So verse 1 summarizes events that will fill six months. But what happened in between, Lazarus doesn't tell us. Which illustrates the fact that he's not giving us an exhaustive life or biography on the Lord Yeshua. Actually, none of the Gospels are doing that. They write Gospels, not biographies. The writers are also not recording an exhaustive history. They're not giving us every detail. Some focus on some details, some focus on the others. They're very selective of the things they tell us about the Lord's ministry because they have a certain purpose in their writing. The geographical location of the opening verses of 7 were still in Galilee where He fed the 20,000 with the bread of life. He gave that bread of life discourse. 
everything that happened in six, he's still there. All right. He's in Galilee for a year, ministering, preaching, teaching concerning the kingdom, healing people, casting out demons, doing miracles. This period of time that Lazarus leaves out, Mark records in chapters seven, eight, and nine. See, the different gospel writers fill in different details. And it appears that what the Lord was doing for this six months was engaged in an itinerant ministry, something like a local rabbi would do. He was just traveling around to different locations in Galilee, preaching the gospel. He left Capernaum in Galilee, and he travels to the border of Tyre and Sidon, covering a large selection of a section of Galilee. Then he crosses over to Decapolis, then back to Galilee, then, then again from the region to Caesarea Philippi, finally covering another large stretch of Galilean territory. He goes back to Capernaum. Did you get all that? Okay, so he's moving all around the area. And during this period, some, some scholars call this the retirement period because he moved away from the crowds. The big crowds at Capernaum, he was going in little small villages and stuff. He kind of withdrew himself, and for the most part, he's spending time just with his disciples, and he's preaching and teaching as he goes along to small groups. So these first 13 verses of chapter 7, they describe the discussion about the action of Yeshua's return to Jerusalem. He's going to leave Galilee, go back to Jerusalem. These 13 verses are just kind of giving us what's going on there. It says he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why did the Jews want to kill him? Okay, that you're both right. Blasphemy, and he declared he was equal with God, which they saw as blasphemy. Back in chapter 5, when he was last in Jerusalem, remember, he healed the lame man, and then this happens in 5.18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, because he healed the man on the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So they're trying to kill him because he's they got the connection that he's making himself equal with God. And they, this was a crime of blasphemy. And so they wanted to kill him. Now, it says the Jews were seeking to kill him. Well, who does he mean by Jews here? Every Jew out there was trying to kill him? Lazarus primarily, and I say primarily because it's not all the time, but primarily uses the word Jew to describe those who are in authority. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they controlled the religious civil government of Judea. They didn't have much influence over the Galilean territory where Herod Antipas was in charge. So he was kind of traveled around unopposed up there. But in Judea, these Jews, they wanted to kill him. All right. Now, notice 7.2 says, now the feast of the Jews. So here we got Jews used in a totally different way in two different verses. All right? Because when it uses Jews here, he's not saying, oh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have this feast. No. It was a feast of Israel, feast that Yahweh had given to the children of Israel. So the events of chapter 7 take place in the context of the feast of booths or tabernacles in Jerusalem. So, in order to really better understand this chapter, we have to have an understanding of this feast and what happened at this feast. I think for the most part, now you should be the exception, because we've talked about the feast a whole lot. So, hopefully you're the exception. But most Christians have no clue about the feast or what they portray or what they do. Old Covenant Israel had how many of these feasts? Seven. Thank you. 
They were prescribed by Yahweh. These feasts are discussed throughout the Bible in a lot of different places. But if you go to Leviticus 23, they're giving in order. Seven holidays, chronological sequence. Leviticus 23, 4 says, These are the appointed times of Yahweh. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim, you being Israel, you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. Now the words holy convocations here is the Hebrew word moed. And it really means rehearsals. This is really important. The feasts of Yahweh were appointed times of worship for Israel that served as dress rehearsals. Dress rehearsals of prophetic events that were to happen in the future. In other words, they'd act out these feasts and God was trying to teach them through these feasts. He was showing them what He was going to do. They were pictures of the coming work of Messiah. So all these feasts are about Yahweh. These feasts are both literal feasts celebrated in Israel every year and they're types of God's prophetic calendar of events for the church. Now the four spring feasts are what? What's the first feast? Passover. Second one? Nope. We haven't gone over this enough, I guess. Unleavened bread. Okay. The next feast is? <laughs> First fruits. And the fourth spring feast is? Pentecost. Alright. Pentecost. These four feasts are a prophetic shadowing of the first coming of Yeshua. They speak of His death. Passover is the death of Christ. They speak of deliverance. Unleavened bread speaks of deliverance. Alright? That represented deliverance from Egypt and it represents the deliverance that Christ brings. First fruits pictures resurrection. Alright? And Pentecost is the birth of the church. It's the advent of the new covenant. So all these were feasts that Israel celebrated but they pictured the coming of these events with Christ. Now the remaining three feasts are called the fall feasts, which were prophetic shadowings of the second coming. Alright? And these feasts are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles or Booths. The fall feast took place in the month of Tishri on the Hebrew calendar. And these three feasts speak of the consummation of redemption after the outpouring of God's wrath, the new heavens and the new earth, which typified the Feast of Tabernacles. Alright, this is Israel's calendar. Now, here's what happens. Most people say, okay, the first coming, those feasts have been fulfilled. And then the fall feast, they're yet removed. We still haven't seen them. Which is absolutely ridiculous. You put a separation of thousands of years. When if you really understand these feasts, there is a gap in between those. But the gap is 40 years. 40 year gap in between those feasts. And after 40 years, then the fall feast came in at the second coming, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles, and they were all fulfilled. Leviticus 23, 3 and 33 and 34 says, again, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel. These are their feasts saying, on the 15th of this seventh month is the feast of booths for seven days to Yahweh. All right, this is the seventh feast 
It's on the seventh month. It lasts for seven days. The number seven is a biblical number of completion. This is the grand finale in God's plan of redemption. This is Yahweh coming to dwell with His people. That's the idea of tabernacle. A dwelling place. Now, if you study the Scriptures, you find that the Feast of Tabernacles is the most joyous and festival of all Israel's feasts. It's probably the most prominent feast because it's mentioned more often in Scripture than any of the other feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles is known by several names in Scripture. Uh, most often it's referred to as Sukkot in Hebrew, which would be booths or tabernacles. Now, the English word tabernacle comes from the Latin. It means booth or hut. It acquired its name from the biblical requirement for all Israelites to dwell in tabernacles or temporary shelters during the holiday. When the holiday came, all the Israelites, first of all, it was a pilgrim feast. So everybody came to Jerusalem to celebrate it. They all would go down and cut down branches and they bring these branches in and they make little huts. They went camping basically, okay? And they, they either put these huts on their roof, they put them in the streets. This, during tabernacles, the whole place was filled with all these little huts all over it, and people were living in these huts. To remember, as a remembrance, to the end, it was a reminder of the 40 year wilderness sojourn when they were homeless and that God delivered them from their enemies and protected them. The people were commanded to leave their homes and dwell in these shelters. Now, tabernacles also, I think, memorialize God's dwelling place in the desert, the tabernacle. See, the design of that tabernacle was given to Moses by God Himself, and it was later replaced by the temple of Solomon. Now, in addition to the connections to the Exodus experience, this feast was also um, a thanksgiving for the harvest. It was a harvest festival, all right? It was called the Feast of Ingathering because it was observed after the final harvest of grapes and olives. We read this in Exodus 22.16. Also, you should observe the Feast of the Harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also, the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, this is their agricultural year's ending, when you gather in your fruit of your labors from the field. So, this feast had a double purpose. To remind Israel of their time in the wilderness when God took care of them. So, they lived in booths. They rejoiced before the Lord of the harvest. It also involved looking forward to a second exodus. That was tied in with this. The time when the kingdom of God would be brought in with all its blessings. And it was to be celebrated with great joy. Because it was reminding them that the Lord was dwelling in their presence. That brought joy. That's what the psalmist said. In your presence... Fullness of joy. Now, the mood of Sakotsa was a very joyous celebration. This is a this is a big deal, okay? A time of celebration. And there's a pro- progression here. You have repentance on the Feast of Trumpets. You have forgiveness and atonement on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And now you have a time of rejoicing and being glad at Sukkot. This is Deuteronomy 16, 14, and 15. It says, And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and your female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow 
All who are in your town, seven days you shall celebrate a feast to Yahweh your God in the place which Yahweh chooses, because Yahweh your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. So everybody got involved in Sukkot. Even the strangers, the Gentiles, were commanded to rejoice at Sukkot. Now, because of the joy associated with this feast. It became the most prominent of Israel's holidays. And it was referred to by the rabbis as simply the holidays, or the feast. Because it was the prominent one. And I think the importance of the feast is seen in its inclusion as one of the three pilgrim feasts. Now, what's interesting is, you know, the Bible talks about the three pilgrim feasts. I got four up there. Why is that? Well, sometimes it'll say that the pilgrim feast is unleavened bread. And sometimes it'll say it's Passover, and you get to the New Testament, and they really connect those two feasts because they were one day apart. And they were really were connected. I mean, you didn't go to Passover and then leave for unleavened bread. It was the next day. All right, so these are connected. And during these feasts, Israelites had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. And they were not to appear. That's why they were called the pilgrim feasts. You made a pilgrimage to go there and celebrate it. And during this time, they brought their tithes and their offerings to the temple. They're living off in a different land. They're far away. So how do they give their tithes? They didn't mail them in. They didn't have that stuff then. So when they came for the feast, they brought their tithes. They brought their offerings. To, they, they were told not to appear before Yahweh empty-handed. I think further importance is seen in the great number of sacrifices required during this feast. Each day, one goat would be sacrificed, 14 lambs, Two rams. And here's what's interesting. On the first day, they'd kill 13 bulls. The next day, 12. Next day, 11. 10. 9. So a total of 70 bulls were sacrificed. Hang on to that thought. 70 bulls. That's significant for this feast. We'll come back to that in a minute. Each of the sacrifices were offered, of course, with the appropriate meal offerings, flour and oil, and drink offerings. And during this time, all 24 divisions of the priests shared in the sacrificial duties that week. In the days of the temple, the Feast of Tabernacle was viewed with great awe because it was during this feast that Solomon dedicated the temple when it finished being built. And the Shekinah glory of God came down and filled that thing on the day of Tabernacles. Filled the Holy of Holies. And so the priest couldn't even minister, it says, for the glory of God. So it was a very special feast. Now, remember, it not only looked backward to the Exodus experience and God's tabernacle, but it reminded Israel of her mission to the nations of the world. I think you understand that Israel was called to be a light to the world. They never were good at that. Okay? Never. But they were called. And I think this is one of the reasons that 70 bulls were sacrificed. One bull for each of the nations that originally composed the world before the Tower of Babel. See, up to the Tower of Babel, God was dealing with man, and man just kept rejecting God, doing his own thing, going his own way. And in Genesis chapter 10 is what's called the Table of Nations. And if you read the names that are given there, there's 70 of them. There's 70 nations. Well, God said, I'm sick of you people. You won't listen. You won't follow me. So basically, I'm done with you. And so after the, because you had Genesis 10 is the table of nations. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. All right, they're building a ziggurat. 
You know, and there's a lot of different ideas of what they're trying to do there, but they're definitely trying to overthrow God is kind of what's going on in this thing, okay? And so God separated them, and he, but He didn't just leave them. You Okay, you get out of here, I'm done. No, He put a God over those nations. Lesser gods over all the nations. We see that in Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, alright, they're getting an inheritance. They're getting a God. Each one of these gods are getting a nation. When He divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples. Each nation had its geographical region. When you're reading the Bible, you know, you see, you, you pick this up as you're reading. You know, like, they're going to battle. Well, they lost the battle. Well, that's because our God is God of the mountains and we're fighting in the valleys. And, and we need to understand the God of the valleys and what He wants to do. And they don't get it. So, see, they viewed their gods as territorial. When Israel was out of the land, they were separated from their God. That's how they felt. We can't worship in a foreign land. We're separated from our God. Alright? So He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Most Bibles there say children of Israel. That's a really bad translation. The ESV is based on the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it's a much more accurate translation. Alright? The sons of God. And it's important that when you read in the Table of Nations... Israel's not there. Why is Israel not listed in the table of nations? They didn't exist yet. Okay? Israel doesn't, God doesn't call Abraham until chapter 12. Just so happens that right after he disperses all these people, he starts all over, right? So, the translations that say, according to the sons of Israel, there was no Israel in the table of nations. They didn't happen. Alright? So, at Babel, because of man's disobedience, God divides up the nations and he puts lesser gods over them. They were to worship these lesser gods because Yahweh was done with them. Well, man continued to reject Yahweh and serve other gods, so Yahweh says, I'm done. He gave him up. And in chapter 12, he says, I'm going to start over. So he called Abraham to be his people. He says, I'm done with you nations. I'm going to create a brand new nation, and they're going to be my people. And as you're reading through the Bible, over and over, you're going to see Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because these other nations, they had different gods. But Yahweh was their God. But God always had intention to call them nations back. I'm going to call these nations back to myself. And that's why when you get to chapter 12, when he calls Abraham, the first thing he says to Abraham is, In you, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because I'm going to call them back through you. Now, when you get to the New Testament... And you see at Pentecost, what happens at Pentecost, the church is born and Yahweh begins to reclaim the nations. Just as the Feast of Tabernacles foretold He would do. In other words, He didn't forever abandon these nations to these other gods. He was calling them back. And we see a hint of that in Luke 10.1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of Him to every city and place or he himself was going. What's the significance of 70? Well, since Luke viewed the gospel as God's plan for reclaiming the nations that had been disinherited at Babel, the number of the disciples in Luke 10 is meant to match the number of the nations. The 70 are being reclaimed. They're being called back. So the Feast of Tabernacles was to remind them of that. That's why the 70 bulls, and it's just interesting how that you know, works out. You start with 13, you work your way down every day celebrating, you know, 
us, slaughtering one less. All right, so this tabernacle also, the Feast of Tabernacle occurs at Israel's change of season and marks the, the beginning of the winter and the rainy season. And without the rain, you know, there's no crop. So they're, they're praying during this season of tabernacles for the rain because they need that. Without the rain, they're in trouble. And prayer for the rain is still part today. Now, all the feasts today are still being celebrated, but they are so drastically different that you wouldn't recognize them. Okay, they're not biblical anymore. They say they still do it, but there's no slaughter. There's no animals killed today. And without animal sacrifices, you don't have anything similar to what you have here. Okay? And I don't know if they could deal with it today, with all these animals that need to be sacrificed. All right? So, important. And water was a big important, and we'll see that as we get into this. There was a, a water celebration. There was a light celebration during this feast. And you're going to see both of these. You know, when Yeshua gets up and says, I am the light of the world, he does this during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's, there's a lot to get here. So, we'll look more at this feast as we get in, because this, this thing, all that's happening in this chapter is connected with this feast. Alright, so this is happening at the Feast of Tabernacles, and then verse 3 starts, Therefore, the Feast of Tabernacles, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. Why? Because the Feast of Tabernacles is coming up. Why? So you and your disciples also may see your works, which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Why do you think he adds that there? That's Lazarus' edition, by the way. That's his commentary. In other words, the reason they said this dumb stuff, they're not believers. That's what he's saying in verse 5. Verse 5, literally, neither were believing his brethren on him. That's kind of Lazarus' explanation. That's why they make these comments that don't make a lot of sense here. All right, let's talk about his brothers for a minute. The Greek word for brothers here, Adelphoi, it means from the womb. And literally means brothers who are from the same mother. You know, we say that today, my brother from another mother. You know, well, this is brothers from the same mother. Okay, they were from the same womb. The most natural way to understand this is a reference to the children of Joseph and Mary. Right? Doesn't that make sense? These are, these are his brothers. But there's other views on this. See, people don't, you know, if you've got different views, you've got to change words and make them, you know, epiphanies said these were children of Joseph from a previous marriage. And you know what scriptures he used to back that up? None. There is none, okay? Jerome taught these were cousins. Why? Because the Catholics don't believe that Mary ever had any other children. See, they teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. So, if she's perpetually a virgin, guess what? She can't have other kids. Alright? A Catholic commentary says this. Unfortunately, this word has been misunderstood to mean that Joseph and Mary had intimate marriage relationships after Jesus' birth that resulted in brothers and sisters. This has never been a teaching of the church. Now, by the church here, they mean the Roman Catholic Church. See, to them, that the Roman Catholic Church is mother church. She's the only church. So, that's what they mean. The church has never taught this. All the fathers of the church maintain that Mary remained a virgin all her life. Well, that's not biblical, but that's what they taught. This commentary goes on to say, 
Throughout Acts and all Paul's and James and John's letters to the church, the New Covenant believers are referred to as Adelphoi in plural form can be used to indicate both sisters and brothers, male and female kinsmen. And the Jewish crowds are also addressed as Adelphoi. Now that's true. The point is, in the New Testament, the Greek word Adelphoi is being used in the Hebrew sense of kinsmen or kinswoman or covenant brothers or sisters. So he's saying, you know, it doesn't really mean brothers in the way, you know, from the same womb, but that's what it does mean. He later adds this, if Mary had other sons, it would have been inconceivable that Jesus would have left her in care of the apostle St. John, he means Lazarus, at the foot of the cross, instead of telling John to make sure that another son cared for her. Well, how do we explain that? If he had brothers, why did why at the foot of the cross does he give her care to Lazarus? Because the brothers weren't there. He was there, but he's the believer. The brothers aren't believers. I'm leaving you in the care of someone I can trust. Another believer, one of my disciples. The brothers didn't believe in him. So contrary to what the Catholic Church teaches, I think the Scriptures clearly teach that Yeshua had brothers and sisters. Now, this is a hard verse for the Catholic Church to deal with. All right, Matthew 13, 55-56. It is not, is not this the carpenter's son? Okay, talking about Joseph. All right. Is not Mary called his mother? So he's talking about Yeshua's parents and his brothers. So, he's talking about Yeshua's parents. In other words, he jumps into cousins or something else. That doesn't make any sense. And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? When there did this man get all these things? So, they're talking about his family. So, according to the Bible, Mary had given birth to at least four sons and two daughters. I think this shows the idea that Mary's perpetual virginity is a myth. Now, the idea of the perpetual virginity first appeared in the second century. And those who try to propagate that myth will twist this passage in Matthew by claiming that those brothers and sisters, see, they can't really use Adelphoi here to argue this point because this is clearly family. So what they do is they say, you know what? Joseph was married before and he had kids. And so these are, you know, his kids. And again, there's not a shred of evidence. But that doesn't bother a lot of people. Okay, you can present an idea and you don't really need evidence. If you can just keep people, keep people to buy it, they just put it in their brain and they hang on to it without any evidence whatsoever. All right, look at 69.8. Messianic Psalm. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. So here Yeshua speaks in this of an alienation from his mother's children, basically. All right, so the brothers tell him, the feast is coming. That's what verse 2 says. So the brothers say, leave here, go to Judea. Show yourself to the world. Why are his brothers telling him to go to Jerusalem? Boy, there is a, as many opinions on this as there is on just about anything else. But what, what do you think his brothers are attempting to do? I mean, why are they telling him to go to Jerusalem? Well, one of the views, and like I said, there's a slew of views here. They say, you know... They want their brother to emerge as a political messiah and revolt against, you know, Rome and overthrow the thing. And they saw this. They saw that the crowd wanted him as messiah. So they're like, go there. Show yourself. Yeah, let's take. They didn't, you know, no, nothing spiritual. They just thought, let's take over here. 
Some scholars believe Yeshua's brothers are making this appeal because, you know, in John 6, 6, 6, many of his disciples walked away and he said, this is a chance to get your disciples back. Go there, do some great things, and all these people will come back to you. Again, I think it tied with the Messianic. We can take over. We're your brothers. Maybe we'll get a seat in the kingdom, right? Just kind of a new effort to rebuild his popularity. Some say the brothers think that his goal is to become a public figure. So they're saying, you know, if you, if you really want to be a public figure, Yeshua, you got to go to Jerusalem. you got to go where the crowds are. I mean, that's what it says here. So your disciples will see your works which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. That makes sense, right? You don't do things in secret if you want to be publicly known. The problem was, he didn't want to be publicly known. Alright, see, they had it the whole thing confused. Alright? Some say, and this is one that I kind of lean to, they were sarcastically ridiculing their brother. Oh, you want to be famous. Oh, you're a big shot. Oh, you're so important. Go to Jerusalem. Do some miracles. You'll hit the big time there. Why do I lean to that? Because I lean there because I know what his brothers thought of him. And I know what their brothers thought of him because the Scriptures tell me. Look at Mark 3.20. He came home and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. This is ministry for him. He didn't get a chance to eat. And when his own people heard this, all right, his own people here, uh, the word people here really means relatives, literally those from beside him. And we learn from later parts of the chapter that this refers to his mother and his brothers. Well, notice what they thought of Yeshua. When his own heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he lost his senses. Okay, this is a mild translation. In the Greek, it means to be bewitched, to be amazed to the point of being irrational, beside yourself, incapable of caring for yourself. We could translate this, he's lost his mind. He's gone crazy. He's had a breakdown. He's not right in the head. This word is contrasted in 2 Corinthians 5.13 with a sound mind. So basically they're saying he is mentally unstable. We need to get him. We need to bring him home. This is his brothers. Our brothers lost his mind. He thinks he's a Messiah. He thinks he's God. He has lost his bloody mind. So Yeshua's brothers concluded he didn't have a sound mind. He couldn't take care of himself. He's suffering delusions of grandeur. So he's crazy. So I think they're just being sarcastic. Yeah, go up to the feast. Show everybody what you can do. Go show the world who you are. Well, the brothers want Yeshua to show himself to the world. But here's the interesting thing. Lazarus' most characteristic sense, the world is precisely that which those who receive him cannot understand. Show yourself to the world. The world can't get it. They don't get it. They're the natural men. So he can show himself to the world and the world's not going to get it. And then Lazarus gives this commentary. His brothers were not believing him. You know, that tells us that what they were just saying was crazy. Because they didn't believe in him. So they didn't get anything. Four. The conjunction four is the explanation. This is why his brothers spoke the way they did in three and four. They didn't believe in him. So here are the brothers of the Lord Yeshua. They no doubt studied the Scriptures with Him as children. I mean, they all grew up in Torah. 
studying, memorizing Torah. They grew up under the same roof with Yeshua. That would be a problem as a kid. You know, you ever heard your parents say, why don't you be more like so-and-so? They, mom would always be, why don't you be more like Yeshua? It gets perfect. And their brother's going, ah. Oh. Yeshua's blowing the standard for this home. None of the brothers can live up. All right? You know, and I think what we see here with these brothers is it's possible for us to have close familiarity with Yeshua and not really know Him. I think it's possible for young people to grow up in a solid Bible teaching church, to grow up in a solid Christian family with a good Christian mom and dad and not know the Lord at all. It's possible. We've got to understand that. Verse 6 says, So Yeshua said to them, to His brothers, My time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. Alright? <laughs> when Yeshua speaks of His time, He's basically speaking on the level of God's plan. Remember, He always does those things that please the Father. So He's on God's timetable. Both here and in 7.8, the word time is the Greek word keros. Keros refers to opportune time, the right time, the appropriate moment. It's different from chronological time. So in verses 6 and 8, Yeshua is saying, the right time, the exact moment has not yet arrived for me. I think, you know, the, theologians get in a big argument here about the time and the appointed time and what this time means. I think what he's simply saying here, it's not time for me to go to the feast. It's not my time. He says, your time's always opportune. What's that mean? You can go anytime you want. It doesn't matter when you go to the feast. It matters when I go. And it's not my time. But you go whenever you want. I'm under divine constraint. You guys, you go to the feast whenever you want to go. The world cannot hate you, he says, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Alright, for Lazarus, the word world has two meanings. He uses it in John 3.16, God so loved the world. That's referring to Jews and Gentiles. In other words, not just Jews. He loves all different peoples of the world. But the world also is used by Lazarus to refer to everything that God is opposed to. It's those that is opposed him, that what is opposite of him. He says the world can't hate you. Why can't the world hate the brothers? They're part of it. You're safe. The world, you don't have to worry about the world. You fit right in. It hates you. It doesn't hate me. I mean, it hates me because I'm different. I'm not part of it. I testify to its deeds. Look what he says in James 4.4. 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world has a whole different philosophy than we do. A whole different worldview than we do. They think differently. Their mindset is different. Have you ever noticed that the world hates the church? Our worlds are so completely different. You know, and the progressive movement today is really an anti-God, anti-Christ movement. Anything the church stands for, the progressive movement hates. And see, they feel, the progressive movement right now feels like they're losing ground. And they are. And that's why they're riding and crying, you know, and just having a little hissy fit. Because they're losing ground. Amen is right. Amen is right. They're losing ground. Well, Yeshua says, it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. What I want you to see here is they hate Yeshua for what He says. This is really important. 
It's important on a couple of levels. First of all, this is why they should, if they hate us, it should be because of what we say. Not because of how we treat them. Not because of what we do. Yeshua's actions didn't generate this response. His teaching did. They love what Yeshua did. He healed people. He fed people. He did all the right things. You know what they didn't like when he said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you don't have any life in you. They didn't like his teaching. He says, go up to the feast yourselves. I don't go up at the feast because my time has not yet come. Now, this part of the story is very confusing to a lot of folks. Because in verse 8, Yeshua said, I'm not going to the feast. In verse 10, he goes to the feast. And so it seems like Yeshua, a lot of people say, he lied here. He said he wasn't going and he went. He lied or he's double-minded. Well, the problem here is there's a textual problem. And some of the earliest manuscripts read, I am not yet going up to the feast. And these, these earlier manuscripts, these manuscripts that have yet in them, seem to be have better support than the other. So I think that, and that's, whether it's there or not, that's the idea. I'm not yet going to the feast. Alright? You could also see Yeshua saying here, I'm not going to the feast when you think I should or for the reason you think I should. You know, because they're saying, go to the feast, show yourself, you know, get your popularity. I'm not going in the way you think I should or in the time you think I should. Now that's not there in the text, but yet, is probably in the text. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So, he stays there, they left. He didn't leave with everybody else. He waited for a while before he left. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up. Not publicly, but as if in secret. Now, I think this kind of helps us understand verse 8. I'm not going to the feast means I'm not going now. I'm not going publicly. Like you want me to do, going my own time, I'm going on my own way. Now, people generally travel to these feasts in large caravans. So when people from Galilee are going, they get together for protection, for support and encouragement. Well, after these caravans from Galilee arrived in Jerusalem, the Sadducees, the Pharisees would be checking, where's Yeshua? Is Yeshua with them? And they'd find out, no, he didn't come. He's not with us. And so they would kind of you know, they want to kill him, so now he's not here. Okay, he's, he's a chicken, he's not going to show up. They kind of relax their vigil, they put off their plans. And so when Yeshua did arrive, he didn't come announce, he could kind of slip in and be unobserved, unobserved for a moment or two. So Yeshua goes to Jerusalem, leaving Galilee for the last time before the cross. This is it, he's leaving Galilee, he's not coming back, he's going to Jerusalem. From there, he's going to the cross. He says, I'm not going up publicly, but in secret. So Yeshua is going secretly to Jerusalem. He's not accompanying his relatives in the caravan. And the reason he's doing this, he knew they were trying to kill him. Now let me ask you something. He's coming to Jerusalem privately, secretly, kind of sneaking into Jerusalem. Why? Did Yeshua believe in the sovereignty of God? Then why is he sneaking around? I mean, the last chapter is all about God's sovereignty. So, why wouldn't Yeshua say, my God's sovereign, I'll go anytime I want. They can't kill me till my time is up. Nobody can kill me. But He's taking precautions. Why? He's taking precautions because God's sovereignty does not negate a responsibility to act wisely. 
Man, we've got to see this in the Scripture. This is a danger for those of us who understand the absolute sovereignty of God. We know God's sovereign over everything that happens. Nothing happens outside of His sovereignty. And because we're so prone to twist and misuse things we find in Scripture, it's often the tendency of people to see the doctrine of sovereignty as fatalism. Now, the fatalist would say, God's going to do what He's going to do, so I'm not going to concern myself with it. Okay? So, for example, the fatalist says, there's a hurricane warning. we got a Category 5 bearing down on Tidewater. It's going to be here in a few days. The fatalist says, God's going to do what He's going to do. I'm, I don't care. He doesn't make any preparation, doesn't board anything up, doesn't get supplies. Doesn't, God's in control. I'll just ch- chill and let Him take care of it. That's fatalistic. On the other hand, the person who rightly understands God's sovereignty, they're going to make all the preparations that wisdom dictates the whole time trusting God and praying for His wisdom and protection. They know God's sovereign, but they also knew they can get blown away. All right, God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to act wisely. There's so many times in life, you know, people just see God's sovereignty, they get fatalistic. I don't need to do this, I don't need to do that. You don't get really foolish with that, okay? It can can affect so many things that you do. When you're not feeling good, what do you try to do? You try to feel better. Why? It's God's sovereignty you don't feel bad. uh, You feel bad. Just keep it. Don't worry about it. No, we try to feel better because we want to feel better. He's still sovereign. And acting wisely in this context means that we use all legitimate biblical means at our disposal to avoid harm to ourselves or others. And to bring about what we believe is the right course of events. We see it all through Scripture. Everyone, Paul, all these people who believed in sovereignty still acted with wisdom. I think David gives us a good illustration of acting wisely. He fled from Saul. I mean, David's running for his life. Why? Saul wanted to kill him. So David did everything in his power to avoid Saul. That's wise. You know, David knew that he was going to be king someday. Alright? He had already been anointed to succeed Saul. And David knew God was sovereign. And he'd carry out his purpose. So David could have just sat down and said, Saul can't hurt me. I'm ordained as the next king. I'm just going to sit right here and let him throw a spear. I ain't going to try to block it. No, David fled from Saul. He took every precaution so Saul wouldn't kill him. He didn't presume upon God's sovereignty. He acted wisely in dependence upon God to bless his efforts. He ran from Saul and he prayed to God. Yeshua gives us the same idea. We see the same illustration. For most of his ministry, the Lord had been telling his disciples not to tell people who he was. Right? Even the demons were silenced. We know who you are. Be quiet. He didn't want it to, the word to spread at that time. I think Yeshua's attitude of secrecy, secrecy here teaches us something about sovereignty and our responsibility. He knew He was going to the cross. He knew God's will. It could not be stopped. And yet Yeshua used human means to keep secret until the proper time. How does that all work out? I don't have a clue. Okay, He is sovereign, but I know we have to use wisdom. Okay? 
Look at Ecclesiastes 10.18 and love this verse. Through indolence, the rafters sag. Through slackness, the house leaks. Why is your house falling apart? God's sovereign will. No! Human laziness. That's why your house is falling apart. You know, if a student fails the exam that he didn't study for, he can't blame it on God's sovereignty. Well, I thought if God wanted me to pass, I'd pass. No! you got to use diligence. He's sovereign over everything that happens in life, but we are still responsible. And we're to never use God's sovereignty as an excuse for a failure to use wisdom. He's given us wisdom. He's given us the Scriptures as wisdom. We need to act wisely. And I think this is why Yeshua goes in secretly. Verse 11 says, So the Jews are seeking Him at the feast, and we're saying, where is He? This, this whole chapter, as I said, dealing with this feast. He, they're at the feast, or where is Him? Where is He? Now since Lazarus usually used the word the Jews to describe Jewish authorities who are hostile to Yeshua, that's no doubt what He's saying here. All right, the Jews were seeking him. Again, he's using it in a hostile sense. Those who hated him, those who wanted to kill him, are looking for him. As we go through this chapter, you'll see there's four different groups that Yeshua interacts with. His brothers, the Jews, which refers to the religious leaders, the crowd, which refers to all the pilgrims making their feast, and he also refers to the people of Jerusalem, just the people that are there who understood the Sanhedrin and their plans to kill Yeshua. Verse 12 says, There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others saying no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. The word grumbling here is a familiar word to you, hopefully. Gugusmas. Okay? Gugusmas, an automatopoeic word. All right? Automatopoeia. You learned that in school, right? That's a word that sounds like, you know, buzz, zip, zing. Gugusmas is grumbling, murmuring. Sullen discontent. What's interesting is a lot of people, a lot of commentaries, um, some scholars say that grumbling here, it just means they were talking in low tones. But this word, gogusmas, is only used, you know, negatively. It's, it's used of threatening, discontent, muttering. It's always associated with rebellion in the scripture. So I don't think it's just that they're keeping hushed tones. First of all, now, I think the people who are saying, he's a good man, they're speaking in hushed tones. Why? They, they want the Sadducees, they want to kill him, they don't want to hear. But the people who are saying, he leads the people astray, they don't need to speak in hushed tones. They're on the right side. They're grumbling, this guy's, this guy's, you know, crazy, he's, he's doing the wrong thing. He leads the people astray. Here's what's interesting here. The crowd's divided on Yeshua. Isn't that interesting that people have two different opinions of the same person? Now, I'm not comparing Trump to Yeshua. Let me make that clear. But, here's a man who people love or the people hate. And I, sadly, I think the people who hate him, for the most part, don't understand why they hate him. They're just going with crowd mentality. I guess the reason they hate him is, again, the progressive movement is being halted and they hate that, so they got to hate him. All right? I, to me... I think he's a great man, okay? He, he's keeping his promises. He's doing things that I think are really going to benefit this country. But, you know, the country's divided on this. This is the way it always is, people. I don't care. Pick your subject. People will pick sides. 
And the more passionate they are, it can turn into violence, you know? But according to the Talmud, deceiving the people was a crime punishable by stoning. So, see, if they could say he's deceiving the people, they could kill him. So here's the crowd. They're separated. Wow, he's a good man. Well, if he's a good man, guess what? He's God. Because he's saying he's God. And good men don't say they're God. Alright? Now listen. This whole... Look at uh, verse uh, 13. Yet no one was seeking him openly for fear of the Jews. Again, we have this word Jews. How's it being used here? This whole crowd was Jewish. Everybody there is Jewish. So this shows that Lazarus using it in a specialized term to refer to the religious leaders. All right, The Jews here clearly re- refers to the leaders who are trying to kill him. The word's been passed around the crowd. The authorities are plotting to put him to death. And so the people, they're reluctant to associate with him. Especially, like I said, if they're saying he's a good man. Let's not talk about it. They're talking quietly among themselves. Where is he? He's all, I think he's a good man. No, he's leading the people astray. And there's this animosity. Now, before we close, let me give you the rest of the story. Okay, Yeshua's brothers talking this nonsense. Go to the feast. Show yourself. They ended up becoming Christians. All right? We see this in Acts. 113, 14. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And verse uh, 14 says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. These people are devoting themselves to prayer, watch, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Yeshua, with his brothers. So Mary and the brothers are there. Out in the upper room, praying. His brothers had become Christians. James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. Judas writes an epistle later. They had become Christians. Now, while Yeshua's family is originally skeptical of him, it seems like now they've come to be believers. So let me ask you this. What happened to these unbelievers? What happened? How come they're now believers? Well, one commentator writes this. It was the resurrection, no doubt, that convinced them that he was to be claim, he was who he claimed to be. That obviously greatest sign of all signs that he came out of the grave having conquered death. So many say, you know, they, they became Christians after the resurrection. That caused them to believe. What do you think? So it wasn't the resurrection? Well, let's look at Yeshua and see what he tells us about this, okay? But he said to them, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Hey, that's what these commentaries are saying. They saw the resurrection, they believe. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So the Scriptures are... are (laughs) Conflicting with what a lot of people believe, you know. Well, the resurrection, that made them believe. Well, not according to Yeshua. He says here, the resurrection, they, if they don't believe the Bible, they won't believe it. And yet the resurrection happened. How many people saw it? How many people believed? So what happened to these unbelievers? Do you remember chapter 6? Do you remember chapter... That was a long time ago. Do you remember the last seven weeks? Chapter 6. You can't believe unless God draws you. 
Okay? They were always elect, but at this point in time, God opened their hearts. They came to faith. He sovereignly gave them life. And they were born again from above and they realized who their brother was. This is how people get saved. The sovereignty of God. Please read over chapter 6. Read over 5. Read over 6. Those are two significant chapters. Because people are constantly arguing against the deity of Christ. Just get chapter 5 down. You got, I mean, that nails it, okay? And people are arguing about salvation. Well, I think you can just have a free will and just believe. You better read John chapter 6. As long as that's in the Bible, and there's no contextual reason for thinking it shouldn't be, okay? As long as that's in the Bible, God sovereignly reigns and He opened the hearts of the brothers and now the family is united. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the opportunity to share it together with a family. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Help us to realize that there are many, Lord, who hold very different views than we do. Help us to love them anyway and to continue to proclaim the truth as we know it. We don't know who You've called. We don't know who You've given, Lord. And so help us to love all men and continue to proclaim the Gospel that those who You have called might hear and believe. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Amen.